is here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation, and at the solicitation of Japan, was still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, 
but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Well, there you have it, Franklin Roosevelt. This would change the nature of the United States, would change the course of history. Sixteen and a half million men and women would go to war. Sixteen and a half million. Sixteen and a half million. Very few of whom were alive today. And of course, what followed after that was Hitler, Mussolini, full-scale war. A very, very difficult war for four and a half years. With almost half a million American dead. Millions and millions of civilians throughout Europe, Southeast Asia, other parts of the world, killed. The Holocaust. Japan's brutality throughout Southeast Asia, including China and, the, and Korea. And of course, Italy. Italy. You see what's building today on the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. You see the war clouds. There's no avoiding it. There's no pretending otherwise. China seeks confrontation when they think they have the upper hand. And in in no time at all, they've built themselves into a military superpower. How they've gotten there, we can complain about it, but they're there. Russia seeks to move west. What's west? Of course, the captured nations, we used to call them, Ukraine and the Baltics, among others, but so is Poland, and so is Hungary. Communist China threatens Japan, 
threatens the Philippines, threatens Vietnam, threatens South Korea, destroyed Hong Kong, has its sights on Taiwan. Iran is within weeks or months of having a nuclear missile, which it says it's going to use. And it is prepared for war. You heard Franklin Roosevelt. The other day you heard Ronald Reagan. The other day you heard President Trump. Does anybody seriously believe, other than the propagandists in the media and the Democrat Party, that this Commander-in-Chief Joe Biden is up to the task? Has he done anything so far that demonstrates his comprehension of what needs to be done? What do you think Roosevelt and Reagan and Trump would do today? They would be pouring arms into Ukraine, not soldiers, but arms into Ukraine. And all day today I still didn't hear about the 1994 Budapest Memorandum. What else would they be doing? They would be pouring weapons potentially into Taiwan, and they wouldn't have a diplomatic ban on the Olympics. They'd be done with the Olympics. The Olympics. The Olympics with a genocidal China. It's unbelievable. NBC Corporation, owned by Comcast. The National Basketball Association. So many other aspects of the culture that attacks our country from within. That wants to talk about slavery, but only if they can talk about it in the United States 150 years ago. What about ongoing slavery? Not a word. Ongoing genocide? Not a word. Gutless, money-hungry buffoons. Weaken our country from within and strengthen our enemy from without. And Iran... We have a president and an administration that is empowering a jihadi regime so that it is bulletproof from conventional weaponry while also threatening the state of Israel, the Jewish people in Israel, that they are not to attack first, even if they believe doing so will save their country. When America is weak, liberty is weak. When America is weak, our allies are weak. Now, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, there was a young Jewish kid in North Philadelphia who immediately decided that he wanted to join the military. He certainly wasn't alone. He wanted to join the Army Air Corps. He was 17 years old. He lied. He changed his birth certificate. He was chosen. But then as the train was leaving, they stopped him and a sergeant came up to him, showed him his birth certificate, and told him he'd erased 
the five on 1925 and put a four for 1924 and sent him home after a lecture. Next year he came back and he joined the army. The woman who would be his wife, of course he didn't know it at the time, her father, another Jewish man from Germantown, Philadelphia, a man who never went to college, didn't graduate from high school, big man, 6'2", very muscular, amateur boxer. He and his brother-in-law, they called him Tug. He was a Gentile man. But his hands were massive. He was a big man too. Very wide man. He used to drive from Germantown, part of Philadelphia, to the Pittsburgh area and other parts of western Pennsylvania to bring coal back which people would use to heat their homes and cook their food from the coal country to sell whatever they had left to make ends meet. They both decided to join the Marines. My grandfather at the time was 34 years old. Old for the time. But he joined the Marines. He wound up at Iwo Jima. He wound up at Guam. He wound up in the midst of the most horrendous fighting you can imagine. And great uncle Tug, his name was William, he wound up at Guadalcanal facing machine guns. Big, tough, red-blooded Americans whose parents had immigrated to the United States, in the case of my grandfather from Russia. They both lived and were changed forever. My grandfather's hand would never stop shaking. Then he lost his voice. He would talk like this. But he remained a very tough man. And you know what I learned from him about... uh, his experience in World War II? Almost nothing. He wouldn't talk about it. Not to me, not to my brothers, not to his daughters, to nobody. When he passed away, we found photos. Photos. Of some of the most horrendous things you can imagine the Japanese doing to Americans. Photos at night. Others would tell me. They would hear the Japanese torturing Marines that they had captured. Unlike the current military leadership, unlike the current administration, the current mindset in this country... The Japanese, after they were torturing Americans and executing them, well, we didn't take a whole lot of POWs at that point either on Iwo Jima. So when I listened to the AOCs and the Talibs 
and the Omars, when I listen to the Pelosi's and the Schumer's and the others, when I listen to the critical race theoreticians out of our colleges making billions off their books, when I read about how much they hate this country, I truly have learned to despise these people. Despise them. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. A lot of the people, not all, but let me be abundantly clear, but too many, who have joined the ranks of the American Marxist movement, who hate this country, a lot, but certainly not all, are new to this country. Talib, Omar, others, even uh, Joy Reid's family. So I'd ask Joy Reid, I'd ask people of this mental, ideological ilk, when you look at the cemetery across the Potomac from the White House, Arlington National Cemetery, where all kinds of Americans are buried, but the overwhelming majority are white Christians? Does that look like they benefited from white privilege? I'm just curious. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. Mark Levin, America's passionately cerebral voice. Talk with that voice now, 877-381-3811. Next hour, we're going to have Rick Grinnell on the program to discuss some of these issues. But I also want to discuss with him a tweet that I saw in which he, like me and so many others, are concerned about what's happening at the Reagan Library and Foundation with its chairman, the CEO of the Washington Post, what it's doing to the board of directors, what it's doing to the, the programming, the kinds of people they're having there now, 
There's an old Reagan I long before Fred Ryan ever worked for uh, any of the people around Reagan, certainly before Nancy and Ronald Reagan. Uh, I'm quite concerned about it, and so should all Reaganites be. And really, historians. Because they're just washing out the place. Now, before we move on, you know, the movie Patton had a big impact on people. We don't do movies like this anymore. I think they stopped about five, eight years ago. Uh, And uh, it had historical significance. And it showed a lot about what war is like. Not the gory details, obviously. We've had movies that have done that, too. But when I was young, these are the kind of movies we would watch. They reinforced America's greatness, how America took out the Nazis, took out Imperial Japan, fascist Italy, helped save an additional multi-millions of people, freed Jews and POWs from concentration camps. You don't hear that today in our colleges and universities. Instead, you hear from the New York Times 1619 Project and these other America-hating, Marxist-loving, agenda-driven platforms. So on this day, and then we'll move on from this, This very important day, the 80th anniversary, to teach your children and grandchildren at least a little bit about Pearl Harbor and what it meant. And then, uh, you know, using it to discuss what's happening with China and Russia right now and Iran. Because I guarantee if most schools and colleges are not teaching us. Here's the opening with General Patton. Cut 20, go. I want you to remember that no bastard ever won war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. Men, all this stuff you've heard about America not wanting to fight, wanting to stay out of the war, is a lot of horse down. Americans traditionally love to fight. All real Americans love the sting of battle. When you were kids, you all admired the champion marble shooter, the fastest runner, big league ball players, the toughest boxers. Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. I wouldn't give a hoot in hell for a man who lost and laughed. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. Because the very thought of losing is hateful to Americans. Now, an army is a team. It lives, eats, sleeps, fights as a team. This individuality stuff is a bunch of crap. The bilious bastards who wrote that stuff about individuality for the Saturday Evening Post don't know anything more about real battle than they do about fornicating. 
Now, we have the finest food and equipment, the best spirit, and the best man in the world. You know, by God, I actually pity those poor bastards we're going up against. By God, I do. We're not just going to shoot the bastards. We're going to cut out their living guts and use them to grease the treads of our tanks. We're going to murder those lousy Hun bastards by the bushel. Now, some of you boys, I know, are wondering whether or not you'll chicken out under fire. Don't worry about it. I can assure you that you will all do your duty. The Nazis are the enemy. Wade into them. Spill their blood. Shoot them in the belly. When you put your hand into a bunch of goo that a moment before was your best friend's face, you know what to do. Now, there's another thing I want you to remember. I don't want to get any messages saying that we are holding our position. We're not holding anything. Let the Hun do that. We are advancing constantly, and we're not interested in holding on to anything except the enemy. We're going to hold on to him by the nose, and we're going to kick him in the ass. We're going to kick the hell out of him all the time, and we're going to go through him like crap through a goose. Now, there's one thing that you men will be able to say when you get back home. And you may thank God for it. Thirty years from now, when you're sitting around your fireside with your grandson on your knee, and he asks you, what did you do in the great World War II? You won't have to say, well, I shoveled in Louisiana. All right, now you sons of you know how I feel. Mm. I will be proud to lead you wonderful guys into battle anytime, anywhere. That's all. Well, there you have it, folks. Can't do it any better than George C. Scott, that's for sure. I want to reiterate, unfortunately, what I have been saying, which is uh, I think we are pretty clearly on a path of war with uh, China. Um, I do not believe that would have been the case with President Trump. I think he was boxing them in economically and militarily. But considering Biden's decades and decades of... Uh, Aggressive passivism. You've heard of passive aggressivism. Well, he's an aggressive voice, but he's passive in action. The communist Chinese have studied Biden. They've studied Harris, which took about 14 seconds. They know all about Blinken. They know more about these people than we do or that our media care to share with us. And they've never been so lucky. 
Putin's never been so lucky. The Islamo-Nazi regime in Tehran's never been so lucky. In other words, our enemies. The election in 2020, such as it was, was won by our enemies, foreign and domestic. This is a grave period in American history. Grave. I'm not trying to be dramatic. I don't need to be dramatic. I'm never dramatic. When I raise my voice, I do it out of passion, for or against something. We've been talking about China behind this microphone on Fox and, yes, on Levin TV for years. For years. Michael Pillsbury. Who else, Mr. Producer? We've had Secretary of State on the program. Secretaries of Defense. Gordon Chang. Just like the electric magnetic attack, potentially, on the electrical grid. Talking about it for years. And our exposure for years. Just like open borders. When some of my colleagues, who shall rename nameless, some of them my friends, we're about to throw in with George W. Bush when they were receiving pressure and entreaties and thrown with the gang of whatever it was. We led the way here behind this microphone. And that's when I started the Levin surges. I said, no, no to amnesty. I was there in 1986. I saw what they pulled on Reagan. I saw what they pulled on the Reagan administration and they do it every time. The answer is no. No. You, we together. We've been at the front of the line on these issues. And we're not going anywhere. And I'm telling you now that we have to prepare for war against China. I'm not a neocon, which is really a uh, sort of an anti-Semitic statement for these, these Democrats who became Republicans who were sort of Scoop Jackson Democrats and are hawks. I'm very sober about this. Very, very sober. I didn't say we should go to war with China. I said we should be prepared. They're preparing. And that's how you protect yourself. They're not building a military to defend themselves. Against whom? India? Whom? Japan? No, this is an imperial regime. It is a brutal, genocidal regime ethnic cleansing, all the signs are there. All the signs are there. I want you to think about something. World War II ended in 1945. That's not that long ago. That's not that long ago. The Holocaust ended in 1945. That's not that long ago. And in terms of human history, it's a nanosecond, a fraction of a nanosecond. Things happen quickly, very quickly. And they're happening quickly now. Nation needs to be focused, not on destroying ourselves from within, not on the the relative handful of propagandists who are pushing the racist and Marxist ideologies with the voice of 99.9% of the propaganda media who also hate this country. 
Really, right now, in my view, we have a two-front war. And I don't care what they say about me on these liberal sites. I don't care what they say about me anywhere. I speak the truth. I speak what I know to be accurate. We have a two-front confrontation going on now. One undermining us from within at warp speed. And one positioning itself to destroy us from without at warp speed. We've got a lot going on. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. This Democrat Party is really unqualified to be a major party in a free nation. It does nothing to defend individual liberty. It does nothing to defend the sovereignty of this nation. Nothing. It has no respect for who came before. It has no respect for the founding fathers and our documents. It has no respect for the military or law enforcement. None. And they learn nothing and they drag the rest of us with them. And so they're effectively arming up the Islamo-Nazi regime in Iran with nuclear weapons. They give up our pipelines, but give Russia its crucial pipeline, which it uses now to threaten Eastern Europe, including Japan, excuse me, including uh, Germany, and will be able to freeze the Ukraine. Why would you hand them a weapon like that? Trump had cut it off. And I could go on and on. And I will. Now, um, James Imhoff, who's been in the Senate quite some time, is the ranking member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. His son was a fighter pilot who died in action. He said, today's briefing about Russia was classified. While I cannot comment on the specifics of what we learned, as I said in my floor speech last month, Russia's built up along Ukraine's border for the third time this year. It's far different than before because it looks like Putin is preparing to actually invade Ukraine. Our intelligence community has publicly warned that Russia could invade Ukraine as early as this winter. But so far, the Biden administration has taken no real action to deter further aggression or support Ukraine's defenses. Instead, on this morning's video call with Putin, President Biden smiled and waved at Putin like he's an old friend, but didn't say anything about meaningful consequences for their aggressive behavior. Sanctioning Russia over this reckless behavior is important, but it's not enough. When Putin, the opportunist, complains about provocation, we need to remember what's actually provoked Putin is to invade and annex Crimea in 2014. It was not what we did, but what we didn't do. Just as I led the charge for sending lethal military assistance for the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, I urge President Biden to deliver an additional emergency military aid They'll make Putin think twice about invading Ukraine. Stop bullying his neighbors and quit believing he can act without consequences. This should include anti-air, anti-tank and counter-artillery weapons, as well as cyber capabilities, information operations, and more intelligence sharing with our allies and partners so they can contribute as well. President Biden's about three months too late on sending this aid. We cannot afford to wait any longer. His point is it takes time to mobilize. And then to get this stuff from here to there. 
while the Russians already have over 100,000 troops on the border. And they're cutting-edge newest tanks and other technologies and, of course, the powerful Air Force. Ukraine doesn't have most of these things. That's what's going on. It's what I told Representative Waltz last evening. You folks were here, most of you. What should we do? I said we should be sending overwhelming amounts of military weaponry to the Ukraine. Now, immediately, airlifting, 24-7. That will do enormous damage to Russia. Well, Mark, 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 now that's exactly what Reagan did to the Russians in Afghanistan. He armed up our allies. That's what he did. He built up the United States military. He built up the, the allies. He made the Russians pay a price. Economically, yes, but militarily. I'll be right back. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. The cleanup hitter here. The world never ends, ladies and gentlemen, whether the sun goes down or rises. Things are going on that we need to confront, we need to deal with. By the way, as an aside, the, the media are so predictable. I did this interview with President Trump. Part two was aired Sunday, as you know. Among other things, the president said the best decision or one of the best decisions he ever made was the firing of Comey because Comey would have sought to something to the effect destroy him and his administration. So starting with a producer for the Rachel Madcow show over at MSLSD, and I don't know why they're paying her a lot of money. She loses day in and day out to Sean Hannity. She's a loser. She still embraces Russia collusion. Uh, because uh, she really has an IQ of a uh, thumbnail, and I mean that. They put her out, oh, she's so smart, she's an idiot. They're all idiots. Now, that said, so it's picked up by every kook, you know, it's picked up by uh, the Rolling Stone. I was surprised they're still in business, given what they've done. It's picked up, uh, MSNBC, other MSNBC, and regurgitated that, Trump spoke a little too much to this right-winger Levin, exposing himself for obstructing justice by firing Comey. It just shows you folks how sick these dumb bastards are who pose as journalists. Whether they're with backbencher websites, platforms, or MSLSD, which obviously is owned by Comcast, this is sick. It's mindless. Anyway, I want to move on. The reason why I have nothing but contempt for Mitch McConnell is because he has nothing but contempt for you. Nothing but contempt for you. On October 8, 2021, he wrote the President Biden, last night Republicans filled the leadership vacuum that has troubled the Senate 
since January. I write to inform you that I will not provide such assistance again if your all-Democrat government drifts into another avoidable crisis. The Senate Democrat leader had three months' notice to handle one of his most basic governing duties. Amazingly, even this proved to be asking too much. Senator Schumer spent 11 weeks claiming he lacked the time and leadership skills to manage a straightforward process that would take less than two weeks. Whether through weakness or an intentional effort to bully his own members, Schumer marched the nation to the doorstep of disaster. Embarrassingly, it got to the point where senators on both sides were pleading for leadership to fill the void and protect our citizens. I stepped in. Remarkably, even as Republicans saved America from his crisis, he's talking about the funding of the government. Uh, Senator Schumer kept compounding his failures. Last night, in a bizarre spectacle, he, he exploded in a rant that was so partisan, angry, and corrosive that even Democratic senators were visibly embarrassed by him and for him. The childish behavior only further alienated the Republican members who helped facilitate this short-term patch. It has poisoned the well even further. I am writing to make it clear that in light of Senator Schumer's hysterics and my grave concerns about the ways that another vast, reckless, partisan spending bill will hurt Americans and help China, I will not be a party to any further effort to mitigate the consequences of Democratic mismanagement. Your lieutenants on Capitol Hill now have the time they claim they lack to address the debt ceiling through standalone reconciliation and all the tools to do it. They cannot invent another crisis and ask for my help. Sincerely, Mitch McConnell, Senate Republican leader. Got that? Got that? Now, I want you to listen to this from NBC. Congress hatches novel plan to lift debt ceiling with only Democrat votes. Congressional leaders are hatching. Leaders. It includes McConnell, are hatching a complicated plan to lift the debt limit this month with only Democratic votes in the Senate, three sources told NBC News. The strategy, which remains fluid, is a product of negotiations between Senate Majority Leader Schumer and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell that would tie it to a non-controversial Medicare bill. I believe we've reached a solution to the debt ceiling issue that's consistent with Republican views, McConnell told reporters today. Utterly and completely, for the second time, abandoned his own promise, his own word. Schumer said Democrats support this approach as it would not be a convoluted, risky, lengthy process and said it looks like Republicans will help us facilitate that. Quote, unquote. Now, I don't know what scheme McConnell has come up with, but McConnell has come up with a scheme. McConnell, and he's given it to Schumer, and they're both agreeing to it. Which, of course, lays the foundation for this massive spending bill. Because they said, we're not going to raise the debt ceiling. We can't participate in this, in this spending bill and all the changes it's going to make. McConnell. Let another 18 Republicans to vote for the first half of this massive spending bill. Remember the infrastructure bill? Over $1 trillion with all these social engineering programs. Well, the one behind it's the mother of all infrastructure, social engineering bill. The novel approach would tie debt limit provisions to legislation, preventing automatic cuts to Medicare in a multiple vote process, that would allow the federal government's barring authority to be lifted with a simple majority. This is beyond comprehension. Even if you have an advanced degree, a PhD in accounting, you wouldn't be able to follow 
what these fools, these low IQ clowns are trying to do with their Rube Goldberg systems in place. And that's the plan. That's the plan. So he basically, he's basically surrendering the filibuster. Coming up with a half-cocked idea on how to get around the debt limit requirement vote with a simple majority to allow the Democrats to raise the debt limit without the filibuster rule. He's giving it to them. Do you understand what I'm saying? If they're telling you twice that he was not going to put up with this. Now what will National Review say? Now what will the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal say? Now what will all the sycophants and the so-called conservative menials say about Mitch McConnell? It's shocking how we don't fight anything. It's parents fighting. It's the Tea Party fighting. It's the Reaganites fighting. It's the Trumpers fighting. Who else is fighting? Nobody else. Nobody. And the Republicans keep electing them, him their leader. The Republicans keep electing him their leader. Leader into what? My God. If not now, when? You're not going to stand up for principle? Now, we send young men and women off to war who put their lives on the line. We send these clowns to Washington, D.C., and they can't even vote right. It's unbelievable. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. It's always an honor to have Rick Grinnell on radio or TV. Rick, how are you, my friend? Mark, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I want to hit a few things. I saw a tweet of yours, and I agree 100%. What in the hell has happened to the Reagan Library? Yeah. Boy, I'll tell you, it's, it's certainly not uh, what the Ronald Reagan message and legacy uh, should be. And I would say uh, Ronald Reagan was somebody who always wanted to stand up for America and conservative values. And yet, I, I think typical of people who manage legacies of great people, it begins to morph into their own ideas of what uh, the, the former president should be or the, the figure should be. And I think that's what's happened here. I mean, most people are really shocked to find out that the very powerful long-term chairman of the Ronald Reagan uh, Presidential Library and Foundation is also the hand-picked uh, guy who runs the Washington Post. The CEO. By the, the CEO, head of the board, and he's somebody that, um, you know, the, the Washington Post crowd really likes because he's been there for a very long time as well. And it, it's hard for me to think about somebody doing both jobs uh, in, in a good way, in a, in a way that keeps true to what the mission is. But somehow Fred Ryan has done that. And his name is Fred Ryan. <clears throat> he, uh, he started out at a very low position. Uh, in the Reagan administration and uh, worked his way up into the closeness of Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan family, but substantively he was never very 
very heavy duty. Now, I campaigned for Reagan in 76, campaigned in 80, served eight years. We all knew who Fred Ryan was. And, uh, but the idea that he would become the head of the Washington Post corporate, uh, 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 newspaper and also the head of the Reagan Library. So when you look at the board of the Reagan Library, there's a few really solid people on there. I said a few. There's only a handful of Reagan guys on this board. Yeah. I know who the Reagan... He's loaded it up with corporatists. He's loaded it up with uh, sort of Republican establishment times. He's turning the Reagan Library into the Gerald Ford Library. It's shocking. Look, it's really shocking. It's unacceptable. And uh, here, here's the other thing, Mark, is that the, the Reagan family, and I don't mean just the, the personal family, but the White House family, the people that protect the Ronald Reagan legacy, they've allowed Fred Ryan to single-handedly hone the legacy of Ronald Reagan into whatever Fred Ryan wants it to be. I would argue that it's very inconsistent right now with who Ronald Reagan uh, is. Let me give you one perfect example. And this is the situation that set me off. Um, listening to Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin go and be welcomed at the Ronald Reagan Library to host the Reagan Defense Forum, to be ushered in national television, and to be allowed to talk about China without saying a word about the incredible failure of Afghanistan. This is, we're, we're just a few weeks away from this awful fallout and embarrassment for the United States. And our defense secretary is bumbling through an interview and giving a speech on China and avoiding every possible uh, question or, or push to answer some basic questions. Why did we leave 10% of the Americans behind? Ronald Reagan would have never let let. 10, left 10% of the people behind, and yet our Secretary of Defense is at the Reagan Library not even answering the question, Mark. Think about that. It's amazing. And you know, Rick, there are plenty of libraries where Austin should show up. You've got the Carter Library, you know, you've got the Kennedy folks up in Massachusetts and everything. And uh, I noticed that you're not seeing Reaganites and you're not seeing Trump people. Speak of that. Now, I, every right. other year when my books come out, I go to the Reagan Library. I've done this as a tradition. Uh, we sell out. This isn't a brag. This is to explain. We sell out faster than anybody else. I'm an old Reagan guy. And uh, this last time we had like uh, 1,500 people or 1,800 people. It, 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 it's massive. And meanwhile, uh, shortly thereafter, they have Chris Christie there. And I, I'm reading that they have about 300 people in the audience. I'm thinking, well, who the hell invited Chris Christie? I mean, Chris Christie is not a Reaganite, despite what he might say. He clearly is not. And then I look at who else they're going to invite. They have other speakers. And what they mostly have in common is that they are not conservatives. They undermine the prior president. And they are tolerating sort of this, this makeover of the Reagan library. It looks like they've cleaned out the board of most, not all. You got some, you got some great ones on there, but you've got very few of them that they've cleaned out this board. And you're right. I see these big foundations that conservatives, when they die, billionaires, they leave it. And the bureaucracy takes over. Then they move hard left. And you pointed this out. I see this with Fred Ryan. Fred Ryan 
is more interested in advancing the ideas of the Washington Post than Ronald Reagan, I think. I doubt that there's a single person in the world that Jeff Bezos and Ronald Reagan would agree on to run their legacies. And yet, Fred Ryan is running both of them. Look, I I disagree with you in in one way, and I think that the only library that that Secretary Austin should be speaking at is the Culver City Public Library. (laughs) I think that this guy is a disaster, and we're not allowed to say it because of the obvious reasons. And I find it really offensive and dangerous for America when we put... Uh, when we put upon ourselves the inability to critique simply because we're afraid of the crowd. And so I I decided long ago that I'm not going to worry about what I'm labeled when I critique Secretary Austin. He presided over a disaster, an embarrassing disaster for me as someone who cares about foreign policy. Mm -hmm. I'm now going to have to bear the brunt of this in the future because we've lost credibility. Mm-hmm. We have signaled to the world a weakness. Uh, think about that. Ronald Reagan, Mark, yeah. would have never done that. And yet his yeah. legacy was welcoming this guy, and they didn't ask him to confront the issues of Afghanistan even. They let him spin to talk about China. And you know what, Rick Grinnell? Because you've spoken out, you will never be invited to that library. Because I have said the things I've said today and said yesterday, I won't either, despite the fact I've been the biggest draw there. Now, isn't that amazing? No, let me just finish very quickly. I think that's true. But I'm the guy, as U.S. ambassador to Germany, when the Germans said for 10 years they wouldn't put up a Reagan statue, I redid the entire embassy of uh, the United States overlooking the Brandenburg Gate. And I put up the Reagan statue. That's that's so true. I'd like to hold you over. Do you have time, Rick? Yes. I want to get into some of these issues with China and Russia and so forth. We'll be right back. Right versus left is right versus wrong. Call Mark at 877-381-3811. Rick Rennell, let's jump into this uh, trifecta that's going on here that is very, very gravely dangerous. First, Russia. Go right ahead. Well, look, I think we're seeing that that Putin knows that Joe Biden has attacked the America First uh, agenda. And instead of putting America first, Putin sees that Biden's priority is consensus with the Europeans. And we all know that consensus sounds like a noble goal. But for Americans, consensus most of the time means it's the lowest common denominator of what the 15 members of the UN Security Council want or what European leaders want. It's certainly not putting America first. And that desire by Joe Biden to have consensus, to be loved on the global stage, um, really has propelled him into the trap of of Angela Merkel. She is on her way out. She's done as of today. But Um, What Joe Biden has failed to realize in giving her the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is that now in her place, the defense secretary for Germany and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs 
Minister of Foreign Affairs in Germany are both going to be members of the Green Party. Mm-hmm. The Green Party is the reason why we're in this Nord Stream 2 disaster, because Merkel, in order to survive, made a very quick decision to get rid of nuclear energy, because the Greens were building upon her, and then made this commitment to uh, get rid of coal by you know 2035. And so they're in desperate need of gas, because Merkel has scrambled to get rid of all the other forms of energy in order to stave off the Green Party to keep her power. And so Putin sees this. Putin sees the the Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Angela Merkel issues. And don't forget, he grabbed Crimea and rewrote the borders of Europe under those three. And now he's sitting on the on the border of Ukraine with, you know, the same group. And so we can wag our finger and pretend like we're going to do snapback sanctions now, but we already gave the pipeline away. If we really Mm -hmm. thought that we wanted leverage, we shouldn't have allowed the pipeline. And I want to say this because it's very important. The Europeans are with us. If we were really smart about building a European coalition, we would recognize that the Germans are standing alone, almost alone in Europe on this issue. France and everybody else wants energy diversification. They don't want Germany to have this Nord Stream 2 pipeline. European Parliament wagged their finger and said, don't do it. But, you know, we are pretending like Germany is speaking for all of Europe. we got a whole bunch of friends and allies in Eastern Europe that are saying, well, what about us? Mm-hmm. And uh, what would you do now? You know, that seems to me the pretty obvious we're going to be shoving as much offensive military hardware as we possibly can into the ukraine i think reagan would be doing that i think trump would be doing that you know i I first just want to say that that it's totally unfair to be able to have to answer these questions after having a year of bad policies Mm -hmm. and putting us in a corner because now what we're left mark we're left with uh, a bad or super bad policy Right. And so we're scrambling to get out of this because the real answer is what I would have done. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have given away the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Right. And I would have demanded that the Germans pay their fair share while they have a surplus. Remember, they have a budget surplus. Mm-hmm. I told Chancellor Merkel to her face in a very respectful way, but I told her she is the reason that Brexit happened. When she overreacted to allow... Libyan and Syrian and other refugees to come in without betting them, it scared the crap out of the British. Mm-hmm. And they said, we can't be a part of this EU if, if there's going to be no rules and recklessness like this. Mm-hmm. And so you, you've got to remember that this Joe Biden, or this Barack Obama, Joe Biden nexus with Merkel, they're the reasons why Europe uh, rewrote its borders and lost a member. And so I won't, I won't give an inch by pretending we're not with the Europeans here. Joe Biden thinks that he's pleasing the Europeans. No, he's not. He's ruining. His policies have ruined and weakened the transatlantic alliance and weakened e- the EU. We have to articulate that when we're in Europe. As, the, as he did with Afghanistan, as he's doing with everything, quite frankly. Uh, <clears throat> all right, now China and Taiwan. Give yeah. me a view of that. I mean, very difficult issues. Uh, The rise of China has been slow and steady. I served at the UN for eight years, and I certainly saw them beginning to take over all of the seats of the international community. 
including World Health Organization. I think we've got to be better at calling them out. Um, I have this idea that I've been pushing that I just don't think it's right for any American company that's doing uh, sensitive work with the U.S. government, work on sensitive programs, to also be working in China. Because when you have a JV partner in China, there is no Chinese wall between you and the JV partner. Whatever you give them, which you have to give them information, it goes straight to the Communist Party. There is no way to separate your work in China from your work on sensitive intelligence programs. I think you should choose. Um, let me interrupt you briefly. Whatever happened to the Export Control Act? I remember in the Reagan administration, that thing was used to stop all kinds of business activity with communist China, with communist Soviet Union, with other governments. And you, not so much at the Commerce Department, the State Department. And it was, in a, yeah. and it was used. Do we not do, do that happened. anymore? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what happened is, is that on the way out the door, Bill Clinton allowed China to go into the World Trade Organization. And by the way, I think, you know, I'm all for trying things, but we have to benchmark and figure out whether or not when we try something, if it works. I think that after 20 years, we thought China would be uh, more capitalistic, moving towards the greater good, the rule of law, human rights. But but, uh, let's be honest, allowing China into the WTO has not worked. They've gotten worse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we, we don't have the ability right now to say no to our companies who want to, and, and I get it, I get it, that you want new expansive markets. I, I get that. But I think that there's a way that we should say you got to pick. If you're going to be uh, expanding in China, then you don't get to work on sensitive U.S. government programs. Well, I don't necessarily disagree with that. The problem is also the finances. Pouring a fortune into their economy, technology even aside, and that's a great concern. You know, Rick Grinnell, I would argue that so many of our companies today are not as patriotic as companies have been in the past. They're just not. Uh, particularly when you see the genocide that's going on in China, particularly when you see the rise of, of uh, what the Chinese are doing internally, you know, tightening controls over their population, what they did in Hong Kong, which was such a beautiful place, what they want to do with Taiwan, threatening the United States, mocking us now. It used to be... I mean, I'm old enough to remember this, where American companies say, oh, boy, we better rethink what we're doing. Is it that they're just too far gone? They've got too much of an investment in China? Or they want such I a think, huge investment in China? Look at the MBA, for God's sakes. Yeah, I, I think that there used to be a calculus of if we move into China, that there's a, there's a, there's a negative externality, there's a liability, right? They, they're yeah. going to get bad press. They're going to have people say, what are you doing working with these people? That's gone because mm-hmm. the whole system in Washington, uh, you know, we've got reporters who are fighting to grow their city. Every time you go to that city, it's bigger and bigger and bigger. And so we can't expect journalists anymore to hold Washington to account. They live there. It's their city. They're mm-hmm. cheering for the, you know, the, the, the sports teams. They want the city to be bigger and better. So they've no longer critiqued the federal government. It's now a normal city, and they just are competing with L.A. for, you know, the Olympics. Wow, that is a really good way to put it. I hadn't actually thought of it. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I, my, my, my point is, is that we've got to stop asking reporters 
in Washington, D.C., who go to church there, who live there, go to have their kids go to school there, their social life is there. To, to, we have to stop asking them to critique the government and big government programs because they love big government programs. Mm-hmm. Do you think that I'm not going to tear down Los Angeles? I live in L.A. I love the city. I'm not going to mm-hmm. say that we shouldn't get, you know, big conventions or we shouldn't have expansive programs. No, mm-hmm. we, you know, this is a great city. Let's let's grow it. Let's get more jobs here. And that's what's happening in Washington. Is they, they don't act the Thomas Jefferson principle of going to the city and working for your government and then going home. Where's their mm-hmm. home? You know, I don't know why it drives me crazy every time I see a reporter with a uh, with a sports hat on from a Washington mm-hmm. team. Mm-hmm. Finally, Iran. Uh, this looks like a third incredible disaster. I mean, we really were making progress there. The one thing that, you know, I've come to a very clear-eyed uh, viewpoint on Iran is that, you know, we have a threat from Iran. We, we see that threat. We feel that threat as Americans. But the Europeans don't have that same threat. They, they don't have that same threat with a lot of different, you know, uh, groups. Remember, when I first arrived in Germany, Hezbollah was not outlawed by the European Union. They're still not outlawed by the European Union, but I did get Germany to step away and, and outlaw Hezbollah, which is a big move. And, and my point is, the threat assessment from the Europeans is so much different than the Americans, and that's why... Germany leads Europe into having this relationship with Iran that is a normalized trading relationship because they believe, like we did 20 years ago with China and WTO, that if you engage with Iran, if you trade with Iran, you talk to them, that they will get better. But what about Biden? I think what we have... Well, Biden is, is all about consensus. Mm-hmm. He, he, he's not going to stand up for an America First policy because he's embarrassed for any politician that does that because, you know, you get the ire of the Europeans. But I, I would argue that, you know, my eight years at the UN taught me that there's not a single country in the world that doesn't fight for themselves. I've been in thousands of diplomatic uh, wrangles and different diplomatic conversations. And not once, not once has the other side not asked the United States to do something. Mm-hmm. And it's always for them. Well, Rick Grinnell, I want to thank you. Uh, I hope you'll keep your public voice out there. I know you are. It's very, very important. And uh, and we'll have you back soon. I really appreciate it. Thanks, my friend. All right, you too. God bless. Man, is that guy sharp. He is. He's really unique. He really, really is unique. I'll be right back. Mark in. As an aside, let me say this. If Joe Manchin winds up being the individual who can stop what the Democrats want to do, I'm going to invite him on the show, and I hope he'll come on the show, and I want to thank him. If he stands firm, stands for the people of West Virginia as well as the people of the United States, And he rejects the San Francisco Pelosi, the New York City AOC, the Talib Detroit, Omar Minneapolis, ideology of these 
of these Democrat areas if he rejects Schumer and the other Democrats on the Senate side pushing their radical ideology and he rejects Biden's legacy legacy building efforts uh, I will invite him on the program and I will thank him and I will thank him we shall see I'll be right back Broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. Kaylee. McEnany, one of our favorite people here, she will be on the program in about 10 or 15 minutes. But before we do, I want to circle back to what's going on with Russia, our discussion with Grinnell, and so forth and so on. I said at the beginning of this program, and I said yesterday, beware of those who are basically Russia files. You know, it's interesting. If you watch the American Marxists, America is an imperial state. America is a colonial state. Uh, the American military is to be condemned and on and on and on. And yet, Vladimir Putin has murdered his way to the top, and he's murdered his way to hold on to Russia. Now, there's not a hell of a lot we can do about that. That's Russia. But why does Ukraine matter? Anybody know? Why did Afghanistan matter the way we exited Afghanistan? Why did it matter to get out of the Iran deal? Does anybody know, Mr. Producer? You know, right? Because one day we're going to be in one heaping big crap war because you can't ignore what's taking place. It doesn't mean you have to send soldiers. That is preposterous. We destroyed the Soviet Union without sending a single soldier to war with the Soviet Union. Was it wrong to destroy the Soviet Union? You either accept the fact that the American people are a beneficent people who want to live in peace, or you don't. Vladimir Putin is one man who has become worth $40 billion, who has stolen from his country, who's murdered people left and right. He's a thug. We're not looking for a fight with Vladimir Putin. While there was some talk of inviting Ukraine into NATO, there's no serious talk about Ukraine coming into NATO. The states have a uh, complicated process, that is, those that are in NATO for inviting them, but they haven't. What was Putin's excuse in 2014? for invading Crimea, part of Ukraine, and annexing. Was it because Ukraine was going to become part of NATO? What happened to that 1994 Budapest memo? Budapest memo. How come that's never brought up? This isn't about neocons or war hawks looking for the next excuse to fight. This isn't about cherry-picking 
hosts and news and comments and looping them and stringing them together to prove that Washington, D.C. is out to get us. In many ways, it is. This isn't one of them. And sometimes, and sometimes, when we're united in voice against an enemy, sometimes we should embrace that. The more, the merrier in this case. And not just Russia, China, and Iran. So it's not a matter of America intervening in Ukraine. It is about our own interests. I hear it said over and over again. By people I like and people I don't like. What is it? 7,000 miles away. It's 5,000 miles away. How can it hurt us? We don't fight wars in Lawrence, Kansas. We don't fight wars in York, Pennsylvania. We don't fight wars in Plattsville, California. We fight wars overseas. And now the enemy has advanced technology. Used to be that the oceans protected us. Now it's a minimal protection. The enemies has submarines too. They have underwater missiles they can launch with nuclear warheads that are MIRVed. That is, multiple nuclear warheads. We sold that to them. You can thank the Clinton administration. Remember that? I remember the days the Chinese couldn't get a rocket off the ground. It was the late 1990s. Oh, what a difference 20 years makes. So what are we supposed to do? People who speak out against what Russia's doing somehow are bloodthirsty extremists who need a war to fight? That kind of propaganda really gives aid and comfort to the enemy. Aid and comfort to the enemy. Now look at China. But China's a real threat, they say. Why? Russia's missiles won't hurt us? If Iran has nuclear missiles, they won't hurt us either? Look, it's time to put aside ideology. I'm not one who believes in ideology. I believe in philosophy. There's a difference. Ideology is about indoctrination. Marxism is an ideology. Americanism is a philosophy. That is, it embraces things that have worked, things that have been proven. It embraces things for the betterment of society. It doesn't mean we agree on every specific thing, but it's not ideological. We're not fanatics. We're not zombies. We think for ourselves. And so I think when we have an occasion, when there's actually unity that understands that we have a common enemy, Democrat or Republican or anything in between, all you veterans understand what I'm talking about. We're not talking about some war in a third world country, some war, war in the mountains or valleys or jungles somewhere, and we wonder why we're there. 
Most of those countries can't fly bombers off our coasts like the Russians do. Most of those countries can't develop hypersonic missiles with nuclear warheads that we can't shoot out of the sky, as Russia has. Most of those countries haven't laid claim to the North Pole, where they now have a military base, as Russia can and does. And so this isn't just another one-off excursion. And if somebody has proposed sending in troops, who's a person who's in a responsible position, I mean troops to fight a war, can you give me their name? I'd love to know their name. We're not pushing America towards war. You and me. Joe Biden had created and has created a provocation. I tried to warn everybody who listened to this program, but unfortunately there's not enough liberal Democrats who do, that if you vote for Joe Biden, you're voting for the candidate our enemies want. The media is to blame because they didn't vet Joe Biden and they didn't make a distinction between the records between President Trump and Biden. They didn't even care. And yet during the Trump presidency, there was peace in our time. He built up the United States military, created the Space Force. It was a very, very peaceful time. China feared him and us. Russia feared him and us. There were no threats against the Ukraine. There were no threats against Taiwan. Iran was was being driven into economic disaster, much of what Reagan did in a similar way to Soviet Union. And yet look what happened. But all that said, all that said, think about what people are saying, people you despise and people you love. Listen to them clearly and ask yourselves, Would Reagan or Trump take the side of Putin? Is it the United States' fault? I'm reading this in some of the radical left. You know, this is the attitude the nation pushes, Mother Jones pushes, other reprobates push. But we also have to watch for individuals within the Republican Party, although I don't think there's many, but there have been historically, traditionally, outliers. All of a sudden, turn from patriot to doubter. We're not warmongers. We don't seek war. We're not sending troops into the Ukraine. On the other hand, we're not buffoonish peaceniks. We accept reality. We know what evil is and we know what the enemy are. Too many Americans have died when there's been passivity and ignorance in the face of tyrants. When they've built up their militaries to a point where then they, they control and they determine the various military operations and we're, we're caught flat-footed and then a lot of Americans die. There's too much history of that. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin.
Haley McEnany is one of my wife's and my favorite people. One of the favorite people of this show. Why? Smart as hell. Loyal. And, a, and a, just a decent human being. And she's written a beautiful book for Christmas. For such a time as this, my faith journey through the White House and beyond. It is a beautiful book. Kaylee McEnany, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great, Mark, and so humbled by your introduction. Thank you. Well, I'll tell you what. Trust me, everybody believes this and knows this to be the case, particularly when we, you know, we make mental comparisons to Pasaki. I know it's Saki, but it's Pasaki to me. And so uh, uh, P is only silent when I'm talking about, uh, what is it? I don't know. I can't remember any words. But this is a really fascinating book. It's a book about your faith. It's a book about your journey. Why don't I shut up and let you talk about this a little bit? Well, Mark, you know, absolutely. The, the main point of the book is my faith. Um, and in some of the hardest times in life, um, you know, it, God has shown up, Christ has shown up and helped me through them. And some of those hard times were in the White House. Um, and I, I go through my time in the White House. But I also, the second part of the book is holding the media accountable and sharing what I know President Trump to be. Um, he's the man where when... You know, I'm in a meeting in the cabinet room, of course, that beautiful room with the long mahogany table and Bill Barr's there and Kellyanne, and, and they're saying to the president, hey, you know, the Obamacare lawsuit may not be advisable right now during COVID-19 as we're approaching an election. He looks at me and says, you know, what do you think, Kaylee? And I said, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. And he looked me in the eye and said, you know, Kaylee, I will always stand with the base. I will always stand with the promises I made to the American people. And that, in a nutshell, is why President Trump was so successful, um, his authenticity uh, and, and his fidelity to his word. And that's just one of the many anecdotes I have in there of the person I know President Trump to be, not the person who is attacked in all of these trash tell-all books. And you're right. To know him is to really adore him and to understand how smart he is and to understand how wrongly he's been attacked. Now, this is a very unique book you've written here. It's unique in the sense it's, it, it's how you weave faith in your belief system, into your career, into your challenges, and so forth. It's hard to organize a book like that. How did you do that? You know, I knew that there were stories from the White House I wanted to put in there. Um, and along as I'm writing these stories, I'm rethinking and reliving those moments. And that's when I'm realizing you know, the seminal principle and organizing worldview of my life, which is I, I'm a Christian, I'm also a conservative, um, those values animated those tough times in life. Like when I was supposed to be at the podium the first day, I knew I was going to be up against all the piranhas and hyenas, and I was nervous, and, you know, I was actually in my office crying rather than going to the podium because I was that nervous. Um, but it, it's in those moments that, you know, my family got on speakerphone, we prayed together, I got on my knees in the bathroom in the West Wing, said a prayer, um, and, and the serenity that I felt standing at that podium, it wasn't anything I did. Yeah, I put in the work, um, but it was, it was my faith um, that um, got me through that. And so as I'm writing these stories, it kind of just organically weaved its way into the stories because that's who I am and at the core of my life. The book is For Such a Time as This, My Faith Journey Through the White House and Beyond. It's a fantastic book. I mean, it really, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating book, the way, the way that you do weave your faith into the, your I mean, it's, some people will write about faith. Some people will write about the White House. Very few people explain, this is who I am. 
So th- I brought my faith with me into my career. It's Kaylee McEnany. You can go to Amazon.com right now and grab a copy. It's, it's discounted. It just came out today, fresh off the presses. For such a time as this, I want to encourage you, if you're doing your shopping, uh, any major bookstore, uh, you know, or Walmart, Target, Costco, hopefully places like that, Books a Million, Sam's, uh, Barnes and Noble, and on and on and on. But if you want it delivered to you, you can go to Amazon right now and get it tomorrow. Great Christmas gift. Now, faith. You talk about it a lot in your book. When did faith come to you? Were you raised in faith? Explain that to the public. Yes. So I I went to an all-girls Catholic school, but long before that, I was raised in uh, the pews of my Southern Baptist church. And it's there that, you know, I learned uh, the central thing in my, in my life was Jesus Christ. And, you know, moving forward in life, you, you get busy with life, as anyone does. You know that more than anyone, Mark. And, you know, there's times where, you know, he has less of a presence or more of a presence. But for me, um, it's those times, those incredibly hard times uh, where he showed up. And, you know, it's interesting to be in the White House and to have this kind of lens where I grew up in Plant City, Florida, um, you know, go to this Baptist church, and then I take that with me to the White House, and you recognize and see events through different lights, lights like when the president got COVID-19. You know, I'll never forget, it was that infamous super spreader event in the Rose Garden, and, you know, evil was at work there. COVID-19 allegedly was lingering. I ended up getting it. Hope Hicks did, President Trump. Um, but people don't know that just before that event, Franklin Graham was there and all of these pastors from this prayer march, and I see them in the hall, and there's just this, you know, uh, this push and pull between good and evil I saw at play that day. So it's an interesting lens when you grow up that way, um, and I have great parents, my mom and my dad. Uh, You see these events through a a different light. It's not just a news event, but uh, a lot more at work than that. Now, you were on TV. You were defending President Trump, very articulate, very smart, you went to Harvard. Um, <clears throat> you, um, what happened? Did the president call you and ask you? How, how did this come to be that you became his press secretary? Explain that. It was a bit of a surprise to me. Um, you know, it wasn't an interview process. Um, president Trump knows who he wants and when he wants that person. I was his campaign press secretary. COVID-19 had just happened. We were all locked down. I was in Florida. I'm riding in my car with my mom. She's driving, and I'm in the back seat. My daughter was like five months at the time, and I get this call on my phone, and it's an odd series of numbers, which normally is the White House switchboard. Um, And I knew the president well, but not very well. And so I answer the phone, assuming it's him. I talked to him a few times on the phone. um, And he says, Stop right there. Stop right there. Stop right there. I know you're busy. Can I hang? Can I hold you over (laughs) one more segment? Absolutely. All right, don't hang up. What happened in that phone call? I didn't plan it this way. When the music comes, I got to tap dance into the commercial. It's Kaylee McEnany. The book is for such a time as this. I want to strongly encourage you to get on Amazon during a break and get your copy. I'll be right back. Nobody says it better than Mark Levin. I'll go with what Mark Levin said, because nobody could say it better. Call in now at 877-381-3811. We have with us Kaylee McEnany. For such a time as this is her fantastic brand new book, Hot Off the Presses Today, My Faith Journey Through the White House and Beyond. It really is a different kind of book. It's a special book. It really is a perfect book for this time of year. 
So, Kaylee, you were in the middle of, you're in the car with your mother, you get a phone call, you know it's from the White House, then what? So, it's the President of the United States, I'm desperately trying to keep my daughter quiet with the pink pacifier, praying she doesn't scream as I'm talking to the President, and he said, you know, Kaylee, I have a question for you, and I said, what's that? And he said, do you want to be my press secretary? And I said, Mr. President, that would be the honor of my life. Wow. Uh, to which he responded something to the effect of, Mark, get it done. And I assume he meant Mark Meadows. Well, he didn't mean um, me, that's for sure. Weeks. He didn't mean Mark Levin, but uh, he loves you, as you know. But um, he, he did get it done. It took a few weeks and then, you know, onward to my mission of holding the press accountable. And what is your take on the press? Yeah, I have a whole chapter. You know, when I was going up to take the job, my dad said, you need a motto for your press shop. Come up with a motto. Um, he said, hang it on the walls if you can. And I came up with the motto, offense only. And I went in with a clear-eyed view, uh, knowing who the press was, but deciding, you know, I'm going to give them a chance. I knew that chance uh, would, would not work out too well when John Carl, the head of the White House Correspondents Association, asked for a meeting. He walks in. And at the end of the meeting, he hands me his book. He said, here's a copy of my book, and it was front row at the Trump show. Um, so to him, it was a show. To me, it was communicating with the American people. And I have a whole chapter uh, called mm -hmm. Offense Only, another chapter called Vindication, where I talk about all of the stories the press just flat out lied about, like Lafayette Square, Trump gassed and pummeled protesters to get to St. John's Church and hold up the Bible. Inspector General told us that wasn't true, uh, that there were Russian bounties on the heads of American troops in Afghanistan. Uh, we found from Biden's intel community that wasn't true, and the list goes on. Uh, so I took that offense-only demeanor to the, to the podium, and I said, we, we're going to hold these guys accountable. When you came to the podium, you seemed enormously prepared. You had this notebook. And I don't mean, I'm not talking about talking points, but you came there with your own agenda because I think you're one of the few uh, press secretaries who actually understood or understands that you're also there to communicate with the American people through these various media outlets. It's not just them, you know, who, who get to uh, set the media or the public policy agenda. Was that your attitude? Exactly. You know, they, I, I had others say to me, look, when you come into this job, half your job is to work for the president, the other half is to work for the press. Well, I learned very quickly the press has stopped working for the people. So my job is not working for the press, it's working for the people. Um, and so that means talking about the stories the press won't talk about and the riots that we lost a police officer, David Dorn, they refused to ask questions about. They refused to ask questions about the kids dying in the streets to American crime in liberal cities, so we brought their names to the podium. So, yeah, it was my mission. You don't work for the people. The press certainly doesn't. My job is, and that's why I looked oftentimes beyond Jim Acosta, beyond Caitlin Collins, and directly at the camera at the American people, because that's who I was there to serve. Caitlin Collins, very interesting there. She originally had worked for, I think, the Daily Caller, and then uh, moved over to CNN. Uh, you can see people like Oliver Darcy. I think he originally worked for The Blaze uh, in the early days. I could be wrong, but I think I'm right. Now he's over at CNN. You can see Robert Costa. Originally he was with the National Review, and then he went to the Washington Post and co-authored a really vicious book against the president with uh, Bob Woodward. It, it's And they're not alone. It's kind of strange in a way, isn't it, that these people transition over. Is it, and then we have these independent reporters who are gutsy, who don't get paid a lot of money, 
who go into these riots and everything else with their iPhones and interview people or gather information and so forth, they have become in so many respects the real reporters these days. That's who we get the video from. They're not standing in front of fires and saying that, you know, the, the riots are mostly peaceful. Should we, yeah, and should they're we, not about grief. No, should we shake up this so-called White House press corps to be more representative of people like that? Oh, for sure. And it should inclu- include more local media outlets because those journalists tend to actually ask questions people care about. But you're exactly right. These bold journalists who go uh, into these riot situations and put their, you know, in some cases, their, their bodies on the line, uh, their health and well-being on the line. And then you have the cozy White House reporters, many of whom it's about creating a personal brand. I mean, does anyone believe Jim Acosta is there to get the truth for the American people? No, he's there to write books and accrue fame and to get a show. And he achieved all of those things. Um, but look, that's why, you know, Jim Acosta, he was one of the few who, you know, he wouldn't reach out to me about things. I had very few emails from him in my inbox. And then you had the true reporters like Steve Holland of Reuters, who was always asking questions, wasn't trying to have a sexy viral moment or get a show. He was just asking questions like a good old journalist did. But uh, those guys are few and far between. And uh, you're now at Fox and very, very successful there. Are you enjoying it? I'm loving it. You know, outnumbered on every day from 12 to 1 with Harris Faulkner and Emily Campagno. Good company there. Um, you know, your show, Mark, I absolutely love it. And, and I also got to say, I love American Marxism and, and all of its tremendous success. Uh, oh, thank you. And, and just one more point. I, I give speeches across the country, and I was asked a tough question. Someone said to me, hey, who's the thought leader of the conservative movement? And I sat back in my chair for a moment. I thought about it, and I said, Mark Levin. And Uh-oh. that's the only name that comes to mind. And just thank you. Thank you for all you've done for this, this movement. Well, you're very, very sweet and very kind. And I remember, you know, before you were at the White House or anything like this, I, folks, I'd go to a book signing and she would show up, stand in line, nothing special. I'd be with my wife. She would be with members of her family and come up for a signed book. And I said, well, what? we waited in line. Come on up. At the, in, in Florida, <laughs> as I recall, right? It was in... Uh, that's in right. Palm Beach, in Palm, Palm Beach, Beach Gardens. Yeah. Yep, that's exactly right. And uh, in no, your and family's? A big yeah. fan of yours. He is a great guy. He is a great guy. you got a beautiful, beautiful family. And you've gone through, I mean, very difficult personal challenges, right? That's right, yeah. And, and that's why, you know, this book, yeah, it's about the White House, but it's also about, you know, much more than that, you know, having the so-called breast cancer gene, the BRCA2 genetic mutation, uh, puts me at an 83% risk of breast cancer and um, all the women in my family who've had that horrible disease. But, you know, I was able to take proactive action, uh, get a double mastectomy preventatively. And, you know, it's about that challenge as well. And it's just my life journey, which is one small piece of a, of a much bigger puzzle. But, uh, boy, has it been a fun ride and, and just so much good, it resulting in a great husband, a beautiful daughter, baby Blake, and uh, a really fun career. You are a great example. What do you mean a career? You're still very young, you know. You are a great example, <laughs> really, to young women all over the country. You're, you're a terrific example, a person of faith, person of loyalty. You always have a smile on your face like me. No, I'm just kidding. You always have a smile on your face. And smart. And, um, and that, it, it's, it's a really, really good example for young women all over this country. Folks, the book is, and this book is good too, a family book. The book is called For Such Times as This, My Fate Journey Through the White House and Beyond. 
by Kaylee McEnany. And uh, you see her on Fox. You saw her up there uh, during the uh, tail end of the Trump administration. And in person, she's even smarter. I mean, it's a great thing. And uh, I'm thank God you're on our side. Is there anything else that you want to say about your book? You know, I would just say this. Um, you know, I think when I sum up, you know, my journey, and I have a lot of people say, you know, I have a young daughter. You know, how can she be successful? And I always say, you know, it really comes down to three things. Uh, share the truth, number one, and, and I know what the truth is. To It's conservatism. Um, share it boldly and confidently. Work hard. Uh, but most of all, and I think this is so key, is to do it with grace. Um, you know, it's a great Alan Combs, you know, not necessarily in our party, but he said to me when I was on those CNN panels, eight on one, liberals pummeling this little blonde conservative girl, he said to me, don't fight fire with fire, fight fire with water. And I think that that's very wise. I, I carry that uh, advice to the podium, and I think it goes a long way. Um, so for all, all those out there with young daughters or sons, um, you know, that's my piece of advice. Well, have a great Christmas. Thank you for everything you've done for the country, and, uh, and keep at it. We much appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate it. Oh, I do have one more question. Is there a website or anything else where people should go? Oh, yes. Um, so a lot of people say, where can I get a signed copy? That's KayleeBook.com. So just KayleeBook.com. And as you said, it, you can go Amazon, Target, Walmart, wherever books are sold, and, and it'll be there. All right, let's put that up there, too, Mr. Producer. Now, I must confess, I have resigned from Twitter and Facebook a long time ago. So I don't believe in social media that much, but I want the listeners. We've got millions and millions of listeners. We don't need them, Kaylee. So, folks, go to Amazon.com. You can get it tomorrow or the next day. I'm telling you, it's a perfect Christmas gift. And uh, in my view, particularly if you have a daughter or a beautiful wife or not even a beautiful wife, it's a very, very good book. And I want to thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Good luck with it. And God bless. I'm serious, folks. It is really the perfect book for this time of year. So they were very, very smart, whoever they are. I'm sure among them is Kaylee, to have put this book out now on this day, December 7th. It is uplifting. It is spiritual. It's not a book that lectures you. She lets you into her life. She shows you what it was like working in the White House. You see all these negative, negative books coming out. It's just a very positive book. You know what I would call it? And some people will put this down. It's like about apple pie, the flag and country. Because she believes in that. So do I. And she lives it. So if you want a positive story, you want something that inspires and so forth, this is the book. By Kaylee McEnany. For such a time as this. And what's interesting is, on the converse, you can see the people she's up against writing books like Betrayal and other stuff. Anonymous sources. and That's not this book. That's not this book. Go to Amazon.com for such a time as this. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. It is, it is amazing how many so-called journalists have had their reputations and branding careers destroyed over the last four or five years because of their own conduct and behavior. I'll give you an example. I'm just being honest with you, straight with you. Jake Tapper, 
When Jake Tapper worked for ABC News and was a White House correspondent when he first moved over to CNN, I thought this guy is the epitome of a real journalist. Even though he's really into Democrat politics, worked as a spokesman for Handgun Control Inc., he was really able to park that side of himself, put it in his back pocket, and do his job. I was very impressed with him. And once he invited me on CNN many years ago, and I went on CNN with him. And he was respectful, didn't necessarily agree with me, and so on, and very, very sharp. And it's sad. It's sad to watch. Look how he's destroyed himself and his reputation, certainly with half or not more of the country. He's on a really backbencher network now. I mean, his numbers, he can't be impressed with a 500,000, 700,000 viewers, whatever it is, 800,000, I don't know. For a supposedly major news network, a major program, it's sad to see what's happened to him. And he's not alone. He's not alone at all. And when you throw him in with the likes of Joy Reid, well, she's on MSNBC, but you get my point. Oliver Darcy, or this guy, uh, what's his name? Brian, uh, what the hell is this? Stelter? B.S. Brian Helter Stelter? He's now part of that whole genre. It's very sad to see. But he's not alone. They've destroyed themselves one after another after another. He's just one that I wanted to point out. And this Kaylee McEnany, she is just terrific. Terrific. And she really was class and is class under these attacks by many classless people. So I want to encourage you to get her book. It really is a fantastic book. And don't forget, American Marxism is out there right now. And uh, it's 50% off. So if Amazon wants to subsidize your purchase, buy it. But even more than that, Kaylee McEnany's book, For Such a Time as This, For Such a Time as This. Please, I strongly encourage you. Get your copy. Get on Amazon. If you're shopping today, tomorrow, the next day over the weekend, perfect time. It's a beautiful book. This woman has a beautiful soul and a beautiful heart, and she is solid. All right? I'll see you tomorrow. God bless each and every one of you. Take care.